0: Let me just explain a little bit about CMJ. Christ Church in Jerusalem is the oldest Protestant church that's there. They've been doing ministry uh, since 1809, and I think perhaps before that, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, okay. But uh, they are right there in the old city uh, of Jerusalem. They've been there through, if you think 1809, uh, they've been there through some amazing times of transition with Israel. I love the mission for CMJ. Uh, that is threefold, uh, evangelism, sharing Jesus with the Jewish people, and they're there to serve uh, the Jewish people. They're there to serve in a number of different ways. They also educate the church about her Jewish roots, and uh, this is something that's been forgotten in a lot of uh, churches and a lot of the church today. Folks, I've got to tell you, this is so critical. What Aaron is doing traveling around the world and other people from CMJ, educating people about our Jewish roots. Some people don't even know that Jesus was Jewish. I mean, you would be amazed if you talk to some Christians. They don't have any understanding. And once you begin to understand those roots, it transforms the way you see the gospel, the way you read the Bible. And then the third thing is encouraging Jewish believers in Jesus. Some of you may not know this, but some of the most persecuted people in the world are Messianic Jews. Uh, in our very own area, we have Messianic Jews that told me they've been in Heinen's, and they've had people uh, curse them and spit on them because there are Jews that believe Jesus is the Messiah, right here in Cleveland. But we don't know sometimes how uh, the price that you pay when you say that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah. But Aaron, we're so delighted that you're here, and we want to invest. This is, when we bring people in, we bring them in for different reasons, obviously, but Aaron and CMJ are one of the ministries we want to partner with. So we're going to take an offering at the end, because I believe in what you're doing. But will you please come and share with us? We're also going to pray blessing over the church, so I'll pray later. But welcome, Aaron. God bless you. Thank you.
1: Shalom from Jerusalem. I'm going to keep a timer on, uh, which is actually for your protection, (laughs) not mine. For those that don't know who I am, uh, just a short little piece of of, uh, background. I don't normally like talking about myself, I'm a bit of a shy person actually. Uh, I'm Australian, I was born uh, in, in Australia and then like everybody in Australia I get a thing called uh, the wanderlust, we go walkabout, have you heard about walkabout? Yeah. I went walkabout and I never went back, <laughs> instead I ended up uh, in Jerusalem. Now what is an Australian doing in Jerusalem for the last 21 years I hear you ask, good question. Uh, I did not hear the voice of heaven say, Aaron, get thee to Jerusalem. If I did, it would have been in the King James English, I'm sure. But uh, I ended up driving there from England. And when I, when I, you know, going all the way through the European countries and down to Morocco and, and then uh, across. And uh, when I came to Israel, you could do it back then, you can do it right now. When I came to Israel, I discovered this unique environment of Jews who believe in Jesus, and Arabs who believe in Jesus, and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And instead of uh, fighting each other and, and uh, uh, being at odds against each other, they were marrying each other, worshipping with each other, and praying with each other, working together. It's was like, wow, who are you people? And then they told me this story of this, this old mission that had been, been there since 1809. It started by William Wilberforce, who at the same time as being passionate about getting rid of slavery, was passionate about Jewish people and about the church to reconnect to its Jewish branches, its Jewish roots, and, uh, and that, that life-giving sap that will come back when we understand this Jewish book in its context. Because let's face it, right, you know, I can do all things through a text taken out of context. And 2,000 years later, we have. We have some very interesting churches out there. Right. Um, but if we got back to the source, oh, life from the dead, it would be wonderful. And so uh, I joined this, this, this mission. I went to go learn to speak Hebrew and uh, studied at, at Hebrew University in early Jewish and Christian interpretation of the Bible. I studied how Jews and Christians read the Bible between the years 300 and 300. So in that 600-year time period, when we didn't have a Bible, we're still trying to work out which books are in and which books are out. I was like, gee, what, what's everybody reading back then? What is the early church reading? The old, that's right, they're reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. That's right. And yet somehow, they're still seeing that Jesus rose from the dead. They're still seeing the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. They're still seeing the advancement of the kingdom that's going to take over the world. And they could long for the return of the Messiah. We have the blessing of having some extra stuff to read. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to River of Life, and uh, and, uh, I need something to say. Okay, Lord, I'm ready for the download. And I didn't get it. Has that happened to you? Yes. <laughs> yeah? Now, I come from uh, the Middle East. And, and, and so both Jewish and traditional Christian churches follow this thing called electionary. It's, it's a, a cyclical reading of Bible. Jewish people do it in one year. Christian uh, churches do it in three because we've got more stuff to read. So I thought, okay, Lord, you can speak through anything. How about, how about I have a look at the portion for the day? So that's what I did. And it is Luke 18, it's the little portion on uh, the persistent widow. And CMJ is, is about, as, as you heard, three E's, the education. So let's, let's have a little discussion of the word of God. Because brothers and sisters, we came here. We answered the call to come and be with God, did we not? Yes. yes, and we brought our baggage, and we brought our guilt, and our shame, and God fixed all that. And now he wants to talk to us all. So let's let him speak. But we also want to evangelize in, in Israel. We want to evangelize the Jewish people. And so I've got some good stories to tell you about the Middle East. It's not all darkness and gloom. I mean, it is for everybody else around Israel. But, uh, but I want to tell you some good news from the Middle East. And then, then we're going to pray for some encouragement. Because as the Jewish church grows, it needs our prayers. It needs, uh, it needs new shepherds. We're growing so fast, we need new shepherds. So we get, we're going to, um, at the end, uh, have you guys, headed by your shepherd, pray, pray for the church in Jerusalem. Is that okay? Yes. Does everyone actually understand what I'm saying? Yes, okay. Just... Because uh, from Jerusalem, they all speak in Australian accents, all of them. <laughs> so from, from Luke chapter 18, now he was telling them a parable. To show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man. Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Ooh. This is the word of the Lord. So okay, so let's put this into context. And the context is, since about Luke 13, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, and he's heading towards the final showdown. And, uh, and victory, but he's not alone. Now, we would normally probably think that he's got his little 12 disciples and he's traveling along, and maybe there's a few others. Maybe the kids are coming. Maybe there's a wife or two. Uh, Mum might be there. But the actual text says in Luke that there's a multitude. It's like, wow, this guy's going with a whole army of people. And you wonder why they're all joining him. Like, what is it about Jesus that's got this large group of people following him? It could be that he does lots of miracles. Yes, it could be that they're just attracted to the power. You know, I've I've seen this guy beat demons. It's awesome. It could be that they're attracted to the free lunches. Okay, you know, everybody's like, wow, we just follow this guy, and then we get hungry, and then bang, you know, we all get food okay? There's no waiting in line, we don't need to spend any money, and there's lots left over. It could be the awesome medical plan that comes with following Jesus. Yeah, yeah? okay? Yeah. There's, there's no copay, all right? There's like You get sick, you don't have to wait, bang, this guy's good, right? And it doesn't matter what your disease, he gets it. Man, I'll follow that guy. So Jesus, in context, he had to figure out uh, he had a teachable moment with his with his group. He turned around to them and said, "Listen, why are you following me like this? Who do you love? You got to love me and hate your parents." You're like, "What? What kind of crazy verse is this?" In context, hate doesn't mean hate. Hate means preferred. Do you prefer Jesus or do you prefer your parents? Do you prefer Jesus? Or prefer your wife? You love them both, yes? Yes. Yeah. We love our... Wow, we're doing some counseling right now, I can see. We love our kids. We love our cities. We love... Some of you love government. But <laughs> the, um... but we have to love Jesus more. Yeah. So he taught them. It's a very teachable moment as well along the way. And uh, he had his little challenges with his disciples and with with the Pharisees that were always there as well. I mean, it's interesting that love, the first time love is ever used in the Bible. Does anyone know where? It's in Genesis 22. The first time the word love is ever used is when God says, Take your son, whom you love, and kill him. Wow. So love the first time. Now, Jewish people, when they read the Bible, that's a big deal for them. That shows you the word, where love comes from. Love comes from sacrifice. Love is giving. It is not receiving. It is more blessed to give, give than to receive. And You're like, wow, why would Jesus say that? Because it's the truth. And so in context, love is, is sacrificial and, uh, and it's very powerful. And so it was a really good teachable moment for his his disciples. At the same time, they turn around and say, Hey, Lord, increase our faith. Because you're asking us to forgive people that just keep sinning and sinning and sinning, and nothing seems to be getting better. So why don't I just give up? And Jesus says, Nope. We need to have faith. And with faith, you can forgive 77 times 7. Well, increase my faith. But faith isn't something that you can put in a box, that you can sort of show people and say, Have a look at my faith. And uh, I'll open it up and I'll just add a little bit more, you know? Have a really good worship song and I add a little bit more and then I make a mistake as I leave the church and I take a little bit out again. It's not kind of like that. And so here again, you have this uh, question about faith. Will I find faith when I come on, on, when I return? Does that mean maybe we're all raptured out of here or... Do I understand what the word faith actually means? Well, the first time the word faith is used is another good question. You guys are asking some good questions. <laughs> when is the word faith first used? Genesis. 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 Yep, that would be a good guess. Because <laughs> we all would say, well, it's got to be in Genesis, it's the first book of the Bible. It's actually not in Genesis. <laughs> Abraham believed. Yes, but that's a different word. That's the word ma'am in Hebrew. Uh, The word faith in Hebrew is emunah. And uh, faith first appears in the book of Exodus. And it first appears in Exodus 17. And the context of Exodus 17 is God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm has taken his people out of Egypt. He has done miracles for them. He has fought Pharaoh, the king of the world, and he has brought his people who don't know anything about him. Like, What do the people of God know about um, about, about God while they're in Egypt? They don't know anything. I'm cutting out? Can you hear me? Excellent. The children of Israel have been in Egypt for 430 years and they don't know anything about God. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a prophet. They don't have a temple. Moses finally shows up. But when they don't know God, that's then when they're saved. Yes? And the same theology is in the New Testament. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It's not that I read the New Testament and said, wow, Jesus is really cool. And then Jesus goes, great, good. I'll just be back in a minute. Excellent. What happened is, When you didn't know the Lord, then he saved and redeemed them. So he gets them out of Egypt. He's got a great plan for them. He's going to introduce himself. He's going to make himself a people who are going to be lights to the nations. He's going to bless the world through them. And along comes this evil group called the Amalekites, Amalek. And Amalek is a group of soldiers and warriors, and they're going to imprison Israel again and make them slaves. And so Moses gets Joshua together and says, Joshua... I got a really cool battle plan for you. You choose some men and go fight, and I'm going to go stand on top of a hill, and I'm going to hold my hands up. And while I got them up, you're winning. And when I put them down, you're losing. Could you imagine Joshua going? That's that's good. Is it? uh, Can we change? Can I do the mountain thing? They're not soldiers, but here we are fighting. And it's very interesting that Joshua's name in Hebrew, Yehoshua, in Hebrew turned to English is. Jesus. Who's leading the battle? Ooh, that's nice. And it says that Moses held up his hands. and When he got tired, they dropped down. Then Aaron and Hur came along and they held them up together, which is always a nice picture for shepherds to have some good, solid support next to you and how much you can handle and support your shepherd. But it says in Hebrew that they held up his hands, be'emunah, in faith. But we translate that, everybody translates that as steadfast because that's actually what faith means. Faith in Hebrew isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's actually an ing word. in, In English, you call those gerunds. So it's like looking or seeing. You actually say, I am faithing. Right? I'm actually physically faithing. That's why in the, gospel, in the Gospel, the Epistle of James, he says, faith without works is? And in Jewish thought, that's completely logical because the word faith really is a verb. And so when Jesus is using it, will I find faith? He's not talking about a noun, a box, something that he'll see. I mean, he'll see it. He says, will I find people being steadfast? Will I find people being persistent? And so when he gives this parable to his disciples, this huge multitude of people, I mean, they're going to be tested. They're walking towards a, a, a challenge. We're going to face the Sadducees, and the Messiah is going to die. It's going to be a shock to this multitude who have seen him slay demons and, and, and miracle food and, uh, and healing people. And now he's going to die? That makes no sense. And so Je- Yeshua, Jesus says, Will I... Will I find people being steadfast when I come back? When it looked like it was all going wrong, then it's actually going to all go right somehow in this incredible mystery. And so he teaches a parable. And, and uh, a parable is an interesting genre. Parables only occur in the Gospels and in rabbinic literature. They occur nowhere else. You don't find parables in Paul. You don't find parables in the church fathers. You don't find parables in Greek theology or the, or the wisdom writers of Socrates or Plato or these kind of guys. You don't find uh, parables in Babylon or in Alexandria where Jews live. You only find parables in Israel. Interesting. Parables, even though they are made by Jewish people in Israel never mention Jews or Israel. The parables are generic. It's always a king did this. A man went out into his field. It's not a Jewish man. It's not a Jewish king. It's not not a field of Israel. It's not a holy city of Jerusalem. It's Universal. Isn't that interesting? Because the Psalms say, Hallelujah Adonai, call her going, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Right? They, they already from the prayer book of the Jewish people, you knew that somehow the light to the nations would spread out and that God who loved his creation, loved all of his creation, would somehow reach out and touch all of them. He would do it. They didn't know exactly how but they believed that he would do it. And so in their teaching pattern, they began to create this special genre called the parable, which was unique. And it began to talk about salvation in, in, in a, in a non, non-race-specific way, and it began to talk about a land. In a, in a, that didn't, doesn't mean that the land of Israel wasn't important. In the, uh, parables also never occurred in synagogues. That was not how you taught from the pulpit. When did, when did Jesus say parables? Outside, in the marketplace, just walking along. He would do it via on a meal occasion. We're sitting down eating together with some Pharisees. I shall teach you a parable. People were discussing the end times. I shall teach you some parables about the, the end times. And so it was a very easy way to get a simple truth across. So here you have this wicked judge. He's a crooked judge. That's almost like a cliche, yes? We would like some good judges, praise the Lord. But we got one here in in this parable, doesn't say he's Jewish, doesn't say he's a Gentile, doesn't say where he is, of a certain city, very universal. And he's crooked, he's waiting for his bribe, but this woman, maybe she's poor, maybe she's upright, she's not going to give a bribe, but she's also persistent. And she does not give up. She doesn't try and find another judge. She doesn't give him a bribe, doesn't quote him scripture about, you can't be like this. She doesn't berate him and say, you know, you have a judge higher than you, you'd better be careful. She just keeps progging, give me justice, protect me, that's your job. And she's persistent, and that is the meaning of faith, because she didn't give up. The, the, as you go through the New Testament, the, the word faith is used in, in that category every single time. When there's four guys and they've got their poor uh, lame man lying on a mat, they know exactly where Jesus is. He's in a house. For those of you who've been to Israel, how many that is? Yep, a few. How big are the houses in Israel? Not very big. So we've probably got about 40 people inside this house and it is packed. Right? That's what we call a crowd in, in, his, in, in, in the Bible. It's 40 people. Okay? So the crowd that called out, crucify, crucify, is less than you guys. Right, It's not the city. and uh, So they know where he is. He's in this house. Now, we could come back in the morning, just before breakfast. We could sleep outside. We know where the door is. They only have one door. Okay? This is... This is, this is Fire hazard. But, uh, but what do we do? No, we don't wait. We climb on the top of somebody else's house and we bash through their roof and we lower our friend down. And Jesus comes over to him and has a look and looks up and he then says, your mates are going to have to pay for that. What he says is, their faith has made you well. They knew he was going to heal. He could have healed in the morning. I've been lame for a very long time. What's one more day? But no, they were persistent. They were steadfast. They did not give up. And they got their healing. Will I find faith upon my return? Will people be steadfast? Now, faith is as big as a mustard seed. So, pretty tiny. It doesn't have to be these giant leaps for mankind. It just needs to be a little bit. And faith can move mountains. And we get that interesting story where Jesus says, if you see a mountain, and you say, mountain, move and hurl yourself into the sea, it'll do it. You go, great. Has anyone seen a mountain hurl itself into the sea? No. Okay, no one's ever walked up to the Himalayas and gone, well, they were here a minute ago. And now they're in Australia. I'm going to have to talk to these Christians. Okay, you've got to stop doing that. (laughs) But at the time of Jesus, they actually really had moved mountains. They had moved two. So King Herod, the most famous one, is a a big mountain called Herodian. You can actually see it from, from my apartment. And King Herod came along. This is our genocidal maniac who was also a genius. Okay, genius is often wrapped up in madness. He came along and he saw a mountain and went, ooh, nice mountain. I want it over there. So what they did is they took the whole mountain down and they moved it and they rebuilt it. And they rebuilt a palace inside and a palace on top. It's an incredible wonder. It took them three years. Faith moves mountains, one stone at a time. But you be persistent and if you don't give up, that mountain will disappear. It will disappear. And it will be rebuilt. And it's still standing. And so that's what that that, that idea of faith actually, actually means. Jesus gets this parable together with a group of people, and he says, don't give up. We're going into danger. We're going into darkness. And even though I can keep trying to tell you who I am, I'm gonna die. And a lot of you for that's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna test you. And you're gonna run. But if you could stay faithful, miracles are going to happen. And that is the is the is Jesus' very simple message. Little steps at a time. And you will bring down kingdoms, you will bring down mountains, and you will destroy all those giants. And that is a good thing. And that is good news. For Jesus, he finishes by saying the Son of Man returns. Well, who's the Son of Man? Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of God, right? We do. But he himself didn't. Why didn't he do that? Because in context in the Bible, there are lots of sons of God. Who's the son or daughter of God? Well, we are. So Jesus could say, hey, I'm the Son of God. And everyone in the room would have gone, that's excellent. Me too. (laughs) Uh, Israel is called a Son of God. Angels are called Sons of God. So Jesus had a very special way to describe who he was. So when you read the Gospels, he says, I am the Son of Man, Ben-Adam. Now, Ben-Adam in Hebrew just simply means human being. You say in Hebrew, Ani I'm simply a guy. I make lots of mistakes. However, there's a book in the Bible called Daniel, and Daniel has this very special character called "The Son of Man." And the Son of Man is powerful, and he's unique, and he's a human. at the same time, he stands before the ancient of days, and he is given a kingdom, and he is worshipped by nations, and he has all authority. And it's just a stunning, who is this guy? And so in in, in the Jewish world, the way to describe yourself, Jesus would say, I'm the son of man. That's me. And when I come back, am I going to find people walking forward or have you all run away? Because even just a little bit of faith in action can tear down strongholds. And that is very good news. And so some more good news about the Middle East. CMJ, the Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, went to Israel in the 1800s, and it was uh, ruled by the Ottoman Turk. And the Ottoman Turk had... uh, Where did the Turks come from, I hear you ask? Uh, Most of us would probably say, Turkey. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not 100% true. They're actually Chinese. And they were brought over, the northern Chinese tribe, southern Mongolian tribe, called the Seljuks, they were brought over to destroy the Byzantines who used to live in Turkey. Then they took over, and then they decided, they're not Arabs, they're Muslims, but they're not Arabs, they decided to take over all the Arabs. So by the time the Protestants arrived in the Middle East, it was all run by these these Turks. And they sort of went, wow, these uh, Turks are pretty fierce. They've got this rule that says you can't build new churches, you can't build new synagogues. This is Islamic holy territory. They are fierce Muslims. They were so fierce... That they invaded Europe. Do you know how far they got? They got all the way to Vienna, right? They owned Romania. They owned Greece, right? Until the 1800s, 1880s, I think Greece got free. They owned uh, Serbia and uh, Yugoslavia, parts of Hungary. They were thrusting up into Austria. These are fierce, holy Islamic warriors. And along comes this little mission society and says, We'd like to build a church. No. Oh, well, we could have turned around and walked away. But they didn't. They decided uh, okay, well, we can't get our church legally. How shall we do it? Well, yeah. <laughs> we shall bend <binge> the rules. <laughs> you know, we are under grace, yes. <laughs> so, what they did is they built a consulate in Jerusalem. This is, you know, 170 years before Donald Trump put his, con- his embassy in Jerusalem. The British were there. Ooh, ruled yeah. Britannia. And uh, they built a consulate in Jerusalem. And attached to the consulate, they said, listen, my consulate doesn't speak Greek. He doesn't speak Armenian. And he's really uncomfortable in Catholic churches. Can he please have a small private chapel just for himself and his family? OK. So then they built this structure that was three times the size of his house and fit 200 people. <laughs> Okay? Excellent. Took them 10 years, but they did it. And now they got this church in Jerusalem, and they began to preach. They did it in Hebrew, did it in Aramaic, did it in German, did it in Turkish, did it in all the languages that everybody could, could hear. What they would do is they would read the Bible in public. They would just stand at the end of street corners and just read. And people would come up and go, what are, what are you reading? Those are very interesting stories. I'm reading about the Messiah. Would you like to know more? Yes, I would. I'd come in for coffee and this small little community. And it was small. It was tiny. By the time they started Israel in 1948, there were only four, four Messianic congregations with paid pastors. Now, there's over 230. Okay? When I first came to Israel in, in 1998, there were 15,000 Jewish believers. Now there's over 36,000. So we've now more than doubled. And we're struggling to find new shepherds That's our greatest challenge is where do we get some new shepherds? How do we do our discipleship? God is speeding his program up. And it is a good thing for us to see. We are standing on the shoulders of giants and reaping what they have sown. And it is an absolute blessing. So when you turn the TV on and you see disaster in Syria, yes, it's a disaster. You see problems in Jordan, Egypt's not doing so well, Lebanon's an absolute basket case. You know, Wow, Saudi Arabia is about to fight Iran, so now the Saudis are our friends. This is awesome. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible to see Saudi soldiers walking through Israel. And they go, wow, what are they doing here? Okay. They're training. You know, it's uh, unbelievable. I- Israel, God has his hand on that country. Yes. Last year, we had the highest number of tourists ever. This is Middle East, the war zone. And everyone's fine in Israel. Okay. We, 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 live, we live in a, in a, in a land that uh, has, has no major large rivers. We have this tiny little creek called the Jordan uh, and a small little pond called uh, the Galilee, which is called a sea, but it's not really. Uh, and the other sea we have is dead. So, it doesn't, okay, so that doesn't help. And yet we built desalination plants. And so now we have more water than we know what to do with. Hey, every time you turn the tap on, water comes out. When I first came to Israel, you had, were allowed to have two to five minute showers. You couldn't water your gardens and you couldn't wash your cars. But now you can do whatever you like. No one cares because you just turn the tap on, water comes out because we make it. Praise be to God. They found natural gas. Now Israel, who, which has no natural resources, now suddenly has natural resources. And we are exporting natural gas to all of our enemies. Okay? We send over a million chickens to Turkey. Okay, which is kind of interesting. Okay. <laughs> and we feed the Syrians. God has his hand on this nation, despite the fact that over 30% of our population doesn't actually work. Okay, you've got these Orthodox guys, all they do, they're 25% of the population, so a normal, normal uh, unemployment rate plus these guys means that most of your population's not actually working. And yet we pay all our debts. Lord, how do you do that? He's doing something. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And we have this little army that we have to pay for. Okay, well, it's a big comparison to us. But, but uh, my son just turned 18. So he's already preparing for uh, the army, uh, which he's looking forward to. I know that sounds weird. Uh, believers make very good soldiers, oddly enough. Why? Because in Israel, we have a conscription army. So everybody has to go, girls and guys, Arabs and Jews, okay? Muslims, Christians, everybody goes. And so, uh, so for the believers, the ones who, who believe in, in Jesus, serve as unto the Lord, mom and dad tell you as you go. So the army goes, gee, these guys are pretty keen. They're good soldiers. Let's make them officers. So suddenly, you find believers are all officers in the army, okay? which is a, a, good, a good witness for the community. God has got his hand on this country. And at the same time, he's pouring out his spirit upon his, his people. And more of them are coming to faith. So, I'd like to share two stories about two people to pray for. Uh, one guy, one girl. Uh, the first one is the more interesting story. Because uh, I had a chance to be part of it, is a guy called Yaakov. Yaakov is an Iraqi, uh, Iraqi Jew, uh, and uh, in October of last year, we were having a. Is, Jerusalem was having a festival called Beitim Mebifnim, Houses from Within. It is a secular organization that goes around to people with old buildings and says, "Can you please open your buildings so that we can come and visit them? And we'll make a little booklet and a map and." People in Israel will just come and visit because we would love to know what's inside. And we said, yes, absolutely. We do this every day anyway. Yes, we will do it. And not only that, we will provide guides for you. Every half an hour, we will have a Hebrew lecture as we take you around our building. And so we would speak to several thousand people every day for this festival, which is incredible. So on the first day... We have a fantastic time, five o'clock in the afternoon, we're, we're packing up, uh, we've spoken to so many people, we're all on a high, anyone here shared the gospel? Yeah. And you get a rush, don't you? Yeah. Right, right. At, it's nerve-wracking at the start, but when you finish, you're like, whoa, that was awesome, let me do that again. The, this, this young guy comes, he was 26, and uh, he was a bit chalash uh, in Hebrews, which means he's weak, he was weak in spirit, he seemed very weak in his demeanor, his flesh, and his conversation, and he, uh, we, we tried to share with him, but he, he, he wasn't very communicative. But we, we knew he didn't want to leave. So we just said, OK, Yaakov, come back tomorrow. We'll, we'll talk more. At 9.30 at night, Yaakov called me on my phone and said, I don't want to be alone. Is it OK if I come and sleep in your place? Now, we're missionaries. Now, some people would say this is a very bad thing to do. You're putting your family at risk. And I understand that, but at the same time, I can't leave him alone either. There's always a tension in the, in, on the mission field. So I went and picked him up. I brought him home, and uh, we had a talk until about 11 o'clock. Didn't kind of really get through. Put him on the couch and uh, went to bed in the morning, said, Yaakov, we have to get up early. We've got go to go back to Christchurch. Got a big, big day. You know, You can hang around. We'll talk to you in the breaks. In the morning, I woke him up, we're having breakfast, he's not eating anything, and I noticed that his hands were always blocked like this. So I put my hands out for him and said, let's pray. And as he reached out to take my hands, I realized he had cuts on his wrists. I so ah, thought something wasn't quite right. And they were fresh, and he obviously had used a plastic knife, because a horrible job, okay? <laughs> Like something that you picked up from McDonald's or something. was like trying to kill yourself with that. And uh, so I said, "What, uh, what, what? Um, what? Uh, what medical institution are you with?" He said, "Clalit." And I said, "Oh, good. That's the same one as me. I know exactly where to take you." So we hopped on a bus and we went to uh, the the nurses. The nurses cleaned him up, bandaged him up. But now the nurses have seen a suicide patient, so they have to do something. So they printed out something called a hafnaya. It's a piece of permission that allows you to go into a psych clinic. Like, check yourself into the psych clinic. It's socialized medicine in, in Israel. You've got to get permissions for everything. Um, but they weren't going to take him. They were the nurses. This is their station. They have to stay there. So they looked at me and said, "Will you take him to the, to the clinic. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm not related to him or anything, but okay, I'll, I'll take him. Put him in a taxi drove to a place called Givat Shaul, which is in the north of Jerusalem. When we arrived, he had fallen asleep in the back of the taxi. He got up, he took a look at this big gate and these big Ukrainian guards that were at the front, and he panicked and he ran. He started running down the road. Now, I live in a southern suburb of Jerusalem. This is a northern suburb of Jerusalem. I don't really know where I am. The taxi driver looked at me and said, what are you going to do? I'm going to chase him. So I threw the guy 50 shekels and I'm out the door and I'm running after this Jewish guy. Now I'm 48, he's 26. All right, I'm in in a neighborhood, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, It's Friday and I got to tell you, half my brain screamed, stop, turn around, hop on a bus, go home, the Sabbath is coming, have a nice dinner with your wife and family. In the morning, go to Christchurch, you'll talk to lots of Jews, it'll be great. The other half of my brain at the same time said, You preach from the pulpit that you're all in. So don't give up. Don't stop. So I kept chasing him. I caught him. (laughs) I tripped him up. He went down. I sat on him. One hand keeping him down like this, the other hand's got my phone. I'm texting my wife, going, What do I do now? because they do not teach you this in missionary school. When next you are sitting on some little Jewish guy, please answer the following questions. Okay, are you A, having a demonic attack right now? Uh, Yes, B, doesn't work that way. So I don't know what to do. So eventually he stopped wriggling, and we sat down under this bus. Now, I didn't know it was full of people, because eventually it moved away, and then we're just sitting in this car park in the hot sun. But I eventually managed to convince him to go back to the, the psychiatric clinic. When we get there... He just flops down on the ground. Now, Israel's made out a lot of rock. God blessed Israel with rock. So everything's made out of rock. So we're sitting on the rock in the hot sun. The door's right in front of me. I said, come on, Yaakov, let's just you know, go in. It's hot out here. He wouldn't go in. He wouldn't go in. So I went in. And I talked to the Ukrainian guys. Hey, look, I've got this permission. Do you mind helping me in? And they said, nope. So there's this white line. Literally, there was a white line on the, on the floor. They said, he has to get across this line. There's this camera. We can't just walk out onto the street and take people whenever we feel like it and <laughs> shove them in a mental clinic. Okay? So, oh, right, right, okay. so you convince him to get across. So I was trying, I was trying, nothing's working. Someone had obviously called the police from our bus, you know, guy chasing this little Jewish man, okay, some terrorist. The police arrived. Okay, so the police show up. There's this secular policeman and a religious policeman, you know, the long curls and things. They started taking our names and our statements and our questions, separating us, putting us together. When they would put us together, Yaakov's head would end up in my shoulder here. He'd be crying and slobbering and you know, all that stuff everywhere. And they're going, Wow, he really attached to you. I said, Yes, wouldn't fall be He just fell into my hands. I don't even know his last name. Okay. Uh, the, the ambulance arrived. So now we, this, this doctor came out and he had his three nurses or whoever the ambulance attendants are. So we had two policemen, four doctors, and two big security guards in this ring like this, all trying to convince Yaakov to go inside this clinic, and he wouldn't do it. And eventually, the secular policeman said, Yeshechah you have responsibility. Go, How did I get responsibility? I looked at the religious policeman and I said, I'm a priest. He's Jewish. You want me to have his custody? And the religious policeman went, yep. (laughs) So they leave. He hasn't broken the law. He doesn't have a weapon. The the doctors had looked at him. They said there's nothing actually physically wrong. He's already been fixed up with his wounds. We can't physically take him. There's no reason why we should do anything with him. So one of them, one of the doctors said, "Just get him to Hadassah Ein Kerem, which is a hospital right outside Jerusalem, just on the edge, where John the Baptist used to live." So why would I take him there? Yeah, Just take him there. So I put on another taxi and we drive now to to uh, Hadassah. I'm texting everybody at work, telling everybody what's going on, asking for advice, asking for prayer. I don't know what I'm doing. We get to the to the hospital. He hasn't eaten or drunk anything since I don't know when. Certainly not since he's been in my house. So he literally collapsed. So I pick him up and I put him on a gurney in the, in the corridor. And uh, I go and start his file. They're looking at me going, so how are you related to him? So I don't know. I'm, I'm a priest. This is my little Jewish you know, man friend. His name's Yaakov. I don't know anything about that. I don't know where his family lives. I don't know his last name. And they just go, oh, it's weird. So they type, type everything in. And we waited for three hours for a doctor to come and finally see us. So I sat on the gurney, and I did, I did something I'd seen in the movies, guys. I got his thumb, and I pushed it against his phone, and it opened. Okay? It actually works. So like, Great, good. So I went down his contact list, and I called everybody, starting at Aleph, and just went right down. And he didn't have his parents in there. He didn't have any brothers or sisters. The only person who would actually talk to me for any length was his guidance counselor from school. And she told me, look, he comes from a, a home that you know, his parents have split up. He's suffered some abuse. Uh, he actually is on medication. He's sort of borderline schizophrenic type. Okay? And uh, he actually has a job and thinks he functions in society. But obviously, something had gone wrong, and he wanted to commit suicide. Uh, I said, well, I, I, don't, I finally found out what his last name was. Eventually, the doctor came and said, uh, OK, I'm going to ask him three questions, none of which he's going to be able to answer. Because by this date, he is incoherent, okay? just slobbering. And uh, I said, when, when, he, when he can't answer me, I will be able to take him to guess where? Give out medical hospital. Where I was six hours ago? Awesome. So they did that, and they took him away. And then at 4 o'clock in the, in the afternoon, I finally left the clinic and went, went, went to my house. And I get home, and I say, Michelle, my wife, don't ask me how the day was. I'm still processing this. Let's, say, okay, just, just let's have a nice Shabbat dinner. Let's, let's eat. Let's pray. Let's sing. Uh, let's watch a movie. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Just Let me work this out. In the morning, I go into Christchurch. We talked to nearly 2,000 people. It was fantastic. We gave out so many New Testaments and had great arguments and discussions. It was brilliant. On Sunday, Yaakov calls me. He's been let out. And he says, listen, I want to say thank you, and I would like to come and give you the money that you spent on your taxis. And I said, you're not allowed to do that. Because in Hebrew, there's this thing called gimilut Chasidim, the acts of loving kindness. And when you do a good deed for someone, you're not allowed to receive a reward. Otherwise, you lose your reward. Which reward do I want? I want his reward. So I was like, no, you're not allowed to do this. You you know this yourself. Your dad's orthodox. I figured that out. You know you can't give me any money. So, no. Well, he showed up anyway. I happened to not be there at the time. And so he was talking to the other Messianic believers that are running around Christchurch. And he he told them, you know, I had a dream when I was in Aaron's, Aaron's house. And I had a dream. And in my dream, there was this man in black. He was holding onto me really tight. And this man in white came. And he said, he's mine. And the man in black said, no, he's mine. And the man in white said, well, we will let Yaakov decide. And so the messianics are going, oh, we know who that is. You've got a darkness inside you. That's the enemy. That's, that's Satan. That's the, the accuser. And we know who the Messiah is. He wants you. He, you're his. Just you know, uh, So Shmuel, who's an Ethiopian believer, uh, one of our workers, he called me and said, Aaron, this guy's had an incredible dream. And he tells me what it is. And I'm like, Man, I've been in my house 21 years. I get no dream. Okay, It's like, Lord, I get no dream. Yeah, And God's like, we're already talking. What do you want? Okay, Yaakov has one night and he gets a dream. Yaakov has been coming religiously to Christchurch twice a week. And we've been discipling him along the way. The last time he came and stayed over my house was at 11.30 at night where he called up and said, my father's kicked me out. Why has your father kicked you out of your house? He goes, because I've become a believer in Yeshua. He's like, fantastic. Okay, so Yaakov needs our prayers because if he stays on his medication, he's got a job. Okay? He's, he's, he can do it. He just needs the encouragement. He needs his friends. He needs uh, the body of the Messiah. The other story is a lady called uh, Kaylee, and Kaylee is a Jewish believer. And um, uh, she, like many Jewish believers, uh, many Jews who are secular, she did the New Age, she did the the drugs, and she did the trip to India and the gurus and the ashrams and things, looking for truth. And she said, you know, every time I found a piece of truth, I could only hold on to that joy for a little bit, just a few days. Sometimes the man would speak and I'd go, wow, that was so enlightening, and I feel really good and have joy, but it never lasted Somehow she ended up at Christchurch. And she hears this beautiful worship music playing in the church. And she said, all I wanted to do was go in and dance with them. So she did. Okay, so she goes in and she starts dancing. It was a group of Singaporeans. They're not part of the church. They're not part of our community. They just rented the building for the day. They are worshipping the Lord. And they were delighted to have this little Jewish girl come in and start dancing with them. They thought, this is Great. So they started to talk to her, and they discovered she wasn't a believer. Now, instead of berating her and bashing her over the head and saying, but what about Isaiah 53, and don't you understand? What about you can't offer a sacrifice, you're going to hell, you know, all these other things? They just all gathered around her and prayed. And they poured on their blessings, and they poured on their love, and she said, the joy that was in that room, she still has it. And so we see her once a week. Well, I see her once a week. The community sees her a little bit more. And we continue to disciple her. She joined a messianic congregation in Talpiot. She didn't join ours. There are, there's lots, they're everywhere. And then we, we, we tell people about the Messiah, and we let them choose which t- community to join. Right? There are lots of different, different types. But the community keeps growing. And my gosh, that's good news. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, I hope you've had a little bit of uh, teaching. I hope you've heard some good news from the Middle East because our little bit of faith never stopped and God's kingdom continues to expand. He's going to do something amazing in the future with that, that, that city and that, and that country. Uh, and it would be really nice if we could pour out a blessing on the emerging church in Jerusalem. So, uh, Joe, as shepherd of this community, could you bless the, the
0: community oh in Jerusalem? can we stand together? By the way, did you hear? We have a new verb. It's faithing. And it it is. That's a beautiful way to look at it because uh, we tend to think of faith as an encounter, a moment, and faith as a perseverance, steadfast perseverance toward God in the midst of whatever you're going through. And that's the word today. I mean, through everything he's woven together. So can we pray? I'm just going to place a hand on Aaron. Would you extend a hand of blessing? Just extend your right hand. And let's pray for the church in Jerusalem. Lord, I want to thank you. It's so interesting that last week I talked about Wilberforce, and here is our brother telling us that he was instrumental in starting this mission many years ago, 1809. Lord, I just pray for Christ's church that your blessing would rest upon them and that the power of your spirit, Father, would continue to flow through them, the lord i pray for something exponential to happen there is a there is a multiplication of blessing that is coming there is a growth in ministry that is coming it is an exponential expansion of what has happened in the past and I just pray, Lord, that you would release that in Christ church and also, Lord, in the messianic congregations around that country. We just pray that your hand of blessing would be upon them, that the name of Yeshua would be uh, held in high esteem, Lord, in the hearts of many people. And Lord, you're telling me there are many that are secret believers. We don't even know how many of those there are. Lord, give them the courage. The day will come when they will stand. Uh, kind of like Nicodemus, they're part of that midnight congregation that hides out. And Lord, you are working beneath the surface. And, and that's a word for you, Aaron. There's more fruit than you know. There's more happening. And you knew that, but you just this is just a confirmation that that's happening all over. So Lord, we just pray for a release of your truth and blessing and anointing. We know that there are many things that are declared about Jerusalem in the last of days, we know that you have things in store, but Lord, I pray for the believers that are there, that they would be in your arms, that your arms would be about them, that you would hold on to them tight, that your miracles, Father, would be released, God, just as they were in the days of Jesus, that there would be a faith that would be released in the believers. And Lord, you heard Aaron's cry for more shepherds. We pray that you would bring shepherds, Lord, to the people of Israel, bring faithful shepherds, raise them up, Lord, faithful men of integrity, women of integrity that will reach out, that will train, that will love, that will impart good things. Speak to them, Lord, bring them from within the country, but also from around the world. Bring them, we ask God, in the name of Jesus. We pray also, Lord, for the financial needs, um, Uh, Aaron mentioned that there are some financial needs right now and Lord we want to partner with them I just pray that you would multiply what you have given to them and that they would be good stewards but that they would see that same multiplication that Jesus saw with the fish and the loaves that what they have would just go so far it would be amazing we thank you God and thank you for Aaron's blessing for us today Lord we just pray that you would bless him and in the days to come Lord when they need prayer make our hearts aware Connect our hearts, God, that we would know how to pray for them. We just ask you and we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much.